Good morning. morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. I want to bring you greetings from Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, We're so grateful for the relationship we have with this church and the way in which you have faithfully served so many of our students over the years. So thank you uh, for your continued ministry to us. And uh, I also bring you greetings from St. Paul's Presbyterian Church, uh, one of your sister churches where I'm an assistant minister. They were very glad to get rid of me for a couple weeks uh, and afflict you with my presence. So uh, you can blame them uh, later for me being here. Um, but it's, it's wonderful to be with you. And uh, so I'm going to be reading from uh, the ESV, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Get you up to a high heaven, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and see who created these things, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing." Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. 
Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of our Lord. Most gracious and heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak through this passage, that you would speak to us, that you would build us up and glorify your name and send us out for your glory. Pray that your spirit would be among us and that you would cause us to see Jesus, in whose name we ask. Amen. If I would have known, I would have done things differently. If I had only known, I would have done things differently. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever said that? Spent some time studying abroad, and I, when we went to, we first moved to Scotland, then we moved to England, and we moved to Scotland with three kids, and I was doing postgraduate education, and then we moved to, uh, to, to England with, with three kids, and then we came back with four, and to be honest, there was a lot of time where I was stressed out. I was worried about how I was going to make it work, and I felt alone. But if I would have known that things were going to work out, I think I would have enjoyed it a little bit more. If I'd have known that I would actually get a job one day, like, you know, not, not, I mean, I worked a lot, but one that, you know, you can actually make a little bit of money with, uh, then I would, have, I would have enjoyed things a little bit more. If I'd have only known, if I'd have known that my mother was going to pass when she was 61 years old, I would have made sure that I spent more time with her. If I had only known, I would have done things differently. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever said that? If I had only known, I would have made this or that decision. I would have lived life slightly differently. Well, so often, God in his word tells us key truths about the way in which life is going to turn out, about how life is going to go, so that we don't have to be standing around going, if I had only known. Sure, we don't get all the details. Sure, we don't get all the information. But we get a glimpse, a glimmer of where God is bringing us. And it is good. And so we don't have to live with fear or uncertainty because we know in the end God will make all things good and right. Jesus prepared his disciples to wait faithfully for him, didn't he? He's in the upper room. He set his face to the cross. And he prepares them to wait he prepares them to wait. In John 14, 1 through 7, he says, As the day drew near, Jesus says this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I'm telling you something you need to know so that you can endure, so that you will not fall away. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, here he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the helper will not come, but if I go, I will send him to you. I am telling you these things because I don't want you to fall away. 
And even though it doesn't make sense, and even though you can't always see it, it's for your good that I go and that you have to wait. But I said these things to you that you might believe. Those who mourn need comfort, and Jesus prepared his people to believe and to wait in the face of suffering. He told them what they needed to know beforehand and sent his spirit to comfort them and call them, call to mind the words of Jesus. For the days were going to be dark. They would weep while the world rejoiced. They would suffer at the hands of those who would think they were doing a service to the living God. Though it was hard, Jesus had to go. Because it was hard, Jesus sent his comforter and he told them what was going to happen because they needed to know. Are you ready? Are you prepared to wait? Are you prepared to wait while you suffer? Are you prepared to wait while the world rejoices at your grief? Are you prepared to wait for your king to come in his glory? Isaiah chapter 40, just like what Jesus was doing in John chapter 14, he was preparing his people to go into exile. It was written much before the exile, and yet he speaks to people who were headed to the exile because they need to know. They need to know that the exile is not the end of the people of God, that God is not finished with his people. God told them beforehand that when they face the trials, they might believe and that they might place their circumstances and their hardships in the broader context of God's perfect and good plan. In their weariness, they would face temptations to chase after power or the nations and chase after idols. And really, in many ways, part of what the book of Isaiah is doing is preparing you not to trust in idols and not to trust in the nations. You see this with earlier kings like Ahaz. Ahaz was, was, was told by the Lord, he says, trust in me, even though Damascus is coming against you, even though Israel is coming against you. This is talking to the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He says, trust in me and I will deliver you. And he says, no, 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 no. No, I'm, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. I'm not going to ask for a sign like you've given me this opportunity. It's the context in which the virgin birth is, is proclaimed. He says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Instead, what does he do? He appeals to Assyria. And Assyria was quite happy to fill the vacuum, to come in and help. And what he ended up doing was trading one problem for a bigger one. Hezekiah. Hezekiah comes to a tension point. This time, it's Assyria that's, that is threatening the people of Judah, the people of God. And Hezekiah initially turns to Egypt. But then he repents. And he turns to the living God. And he trusts in him. And God gives a miraculous deliver, deliverance to the people of God in the face of one of the most powerful armies in the world. The other... The other place where people are tempted to place their trust, trust is the idols. And the book of Isaiah so frequently takes the idols head on. And, and in many ways, this is what the book of Isaiah is doing in our passage here before us today. is trying to tell the people of God, don't trust in the nations. Don't trust in princes because they're here for a moment and gone the next. And don't trust in idols who cannot speak and cannot serve and cannot move and cannot do anything for you. Trust in the living God. Because of their frailty, because of their tendency to wear out, they are told to wait on the God who does not faint or grow weary. So prepare 
to wait. Our passage today encourages you to trust in the Lord and wait quietly for him, declaring both his power and his gentleness. Behold your God and his power and his gentleness. Verse 9 begins with, Behold your God, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. This passage, as I said before, is directly addressing Israelites who would head into exile. And he says that there, there's a herald is supposed to get up, the herald of good news is supposed to get up and proclaim this good news. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now, this happens right after they are reminded of the certainty of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Who is the God who has spoken? It says earlier, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We live in a culture where we are consistently, constantly let down by promises. Sometimes people let you down because they're wanting to deceive you. They make a promise and they break it because they, they can get away with it. They think you're gullible. And so they make promises that they have no intention of keeping, but it serves their ends. We also deal with people who make promises who are, who are well-intentioned, but don't recognize their limitations. They make promises in good faith, but they don't understand their inability. We live in a culture where we're constantly bombarded by promises that let us down. So if you're going to go through life banking on a promise, banking on a word, then you need to know who has spoken. And that's really what this passage is doing. It's telling you that God has spoken and you need to know something about this God. If you're going to live through exile and live through suffering and wait on him, you need to know something about the God who has spoken. So this bringer of good news is, is, is just one word in Hebrew, uh, translated as bringer of good news. It's actually what the Greek uh, equivalent is, is the word we get evangelist from. That's, so the evangelist is supposed to get up and proclaim, behold your God. These are the bringers of good news. It's the same word uh, used for the one with beautiful feet in, uh, in Isaiah 52, verse 7, those who have beautiful feet that get up on the mountain and proclaim the good news of God that Paul appeals to and talk, when he talks about how people have to hear the gospel, and if they're going to hear the gospel, someone has to be sent, and if someone's going to be sent, people have to send them, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, this is the same sort of language, behold your God, which is really just, behold your God reigns, is really just the gospel at the end of the day, that God will defeat all our sin and our enemies, and subdue and rule over us. I mean, there's more we want to say, but at the end of the day, your God reigns is what you need to know. It is good news. And he says, behold your God. J.I. Packer said that Christianity is a matter of personal pronouns. I will be your God, and you will be my people. If that pronoun was not there, your God, then all of the comfort and all of the hope that is found in this passage would be nothing for us. If he's not your God, then what comfort would this passage bring to you? They have a claim on this God. They belong to God, and God belongs to them. They have a relationship with this God. Behold your God. And the two truths that are going to be proclaimed in this in, in chapters 10 through the end of uh, in uh, verses 10 through the end of the chapter are really uh, can be summed up in God's power and God's gentleness. He is powerful and he is gentle. This is the God you are to behold. And those ideas are introduced in, in verses 10 and 11 and then summarized throughout the rest of the chapter through a series of rhetorical questions. 
So the first thing we see is the good news of God's strength. We see it in verse 10 and verses 12 through 28, the good news of God's strength. Behold, the Lord God comes with, his, with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. God is coming, and he's rolled up his sleeves. God is powerful. Where do you turn for help in time of need? Where do you turn for help in time of need? Maybe you rely on your gifts and your abilities, your experience. Maybe you're a very experienced person. You're gifted with people. And whenever you're in a difficult situation, you try to work that situation in a way that will sort of make a positive outcome because you're, you're good with people. You know how people work. You have this experience. You have these gifts. You have these abilities. Maybe it's your education. You lean on your education. You, you sort of you use your ed- education to help you influence a situation and to work it according to your purposes or t- according to the good even that you want to achieve. Maybe you're connected. You're up against it and you feel a tension point and you go, I don't know how to work through this. It's out of my ability. It's out of my league. But I know who to call. I know who to call. And you appeal to your network. Maybe it's your parents, when you're scared, when you're afraid, when you're lost, and you cry out to them, Dad, Mom, I need your help. Where do you go in time of need? Well, have you ever been let down, though? What do you do when people just do not do what they're supposed to do? You've done all the right things. You know how people work, and they just don't respond in the way that normal people would, right? Right? We've probably all experienced that. Like, you just don't get it. You know, you don't understand it. Or what about when the bank account dries up or the friends don't respond to the text or the email or the phone call? Then where do you go? Where do you go in time of need? Well, the book of Isaiah in many ways tells the people of God, as I said before, not to trust in princes and not to trust in idols, but to put your hope in your God. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that Isaiah does not deny secondary causes. Secondary causes, we just mean the things that God uses in the world, right? Secondary causes. The book of Isaiah even mentions Cyrus as God's servant, whom he will use to send the people out. It's not a problem that there are secondary causes. It's not a problem that you understand how people work. It's not a problem that you're educated. It's not a problem that you have money. It's not a problem that you have great parents or good friends or that you're well-connected. None of those things are problems. But whenever you invert the order and you look to the secondary and forsake the primary, you're trusting in princes. You're trusting in idols. See, the Bible doesn't tell us, forget about your fears. Hey, suck it up, Israelites. You're going to, you know, the exile. Suck it up, all right? Pull your bootstraps up. Where's your faith? Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know, I'm leaving, and you just need to get over that, all right? Where's your, what's your problem, Peter, John? That's not how the Bible responds. I mean, we're sort of like that sometimes in the coldness and hardness of our heart with others. Instead, God says, no, I understand that you're going to be struggling. I understand that this is going to be hard for you. And God says, but don't be fooled. You're going to be tempted to trust in other things. You're going to be tempted to trust in princes. Think of the Israelites. They're headed to Babylon, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And they're going to look around and they're going to go, should I worship their gods? Should I look to their king? What should I do? 
they're going to be tempted to trust in princes and in idols. And God, God understands your struggles. He understands your frailty. And what he does is instead of telling you just get over it, he takes these desires of you and the sinful temptations that we face and he replaces them with something much greater himself. The true and genuine comfort of the living God. Truth is, we all struggle with trusting in idols and princes, with turning to God's good gifts and turning them into idols. God does not say to forget your worries, your struggles, or your fear. Instead, he says, he replaces the empty comfort that you seek with the Lord who reigns over all things. Now, verse 9 in the original ends with, behold your God. And then, and then in verse 10, it says, behold the Lord God. Those are the next words in the original. Behold the, your God, behold the Lord God. Your God is the Lord God. And who is this God? Who is this God who reigns over all? The passage affirms the relationship that the people of God have and then proclaims his greatness and his might. In verse 10, he rolls up his sleeves. And then it asks these questions. Who has measured the waters and the hollow of his hand and, and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Now, this could be referring to uh, God holding the oceans in his hand, but I rather think that it's a different imagery based on what we see in Job and other places where these rhetorical questions are asked. And because it goes on to ask about marking off the heavens with a span and putting the dust in the earth, I think the imagery is rather, can you scoop up the oceans? Children, have you ever been to the ocean? Can you put the Atlantic Ocean in your hands and hold it up? It's a little big, isn't it? Yeah. What about all of them? What about all of them? No? Why not? You can't do that? Okay. I guess it's a little hard. They're pretty big, right? Who could possibly do that? Or what about you take off, mark off the heavens. You got a measuring tape long enough to measure the heavens? Let's start with some, just like one star to the next. How about that, guys? We'll just go out and do it later, right? This, you know, when sun goes down, we'll get our tape measures out. It'll be great. No? It doesn't work, does it? It's absurd. How could you possibly do that? Well, what about taking the mountains? Well, Dr. Johnson and I were just talking about the mountains. And could you pick one up? Could you pick one up and put it in a scale and weigh it? Oh, that mountain's heavy. Well, this mountain's bigger than that. You got scales big enough for that? Or put the hills in a balance. See, the point is, is you cannot do these things. God made these things. Can you measure them? And then it says, whom... Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man has shown him counsel? Now, this idea of measuring the spirit is talking about scrutinizing or judging God's ways. And we know this because of Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his spirit. All of us, we walk around, and we feel pretty good about ourselves. I mean, I'm certainly better than that guy. I'm not appointing anybody, but you know who you are. Um, but, you know, we all kind of feel like we're pretty decent people, Right? But God measures the spirit of people. But who can measure the spirit of the Lord? We live in a culture that's constantly judging God and his ways and saying he cannot be good. He cannot exist. Why does he do that? The Bible says, who could measure the spirit of the Lord? He can measure your spirit, but who can measure the spirit of the Lord? God can weigh the spirit of man, but who can measure the spirit of the Lord? Who can give him counsel? And then in verses 14 through 17, whom did he consult and who made him understand? 
Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? It goes on to talk about the nations being like a drop in a bucket or dust on the scales and takes up the coast and like fine dust. Where did God go to school? Right? Was he in a good school district? Or did he have really great homeschooling parents? You know, because he wasn't in a great school district or they had a different philosophy of education. And so he had great homeschooling parents, right? Or maybe he got a good SAT score. And he went to Harvard, or he got, to, I got into Harvard Law or Yale Law, right? It's an absurd question. It's, it's actually, whenever the Bible is funny, it's actually really, really serious. It's so true. I mean, this is meant to be humorous in some ways. I mean, the absurdity of thinking of God seeking counsel from someone. Like, where did God grow up? And then it talks about how, about the, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Kids, if you, if you take a bucket and you take one drop out of it, would it be a big difference? Would you even notice it? Or it talks about being like dust on a scale. When you, in the ancient world, when you would sort of check uh, weights of silver and things like that because you wanted to, to purchase something, you had to make sure it was a just weight. So you would put it on scales, and do you get your end dust out so you can clean it up a little bit because you don't want to mess up the... No, of course not. The dust means nothing. That's what the nations are like before this God. Like a speck of dust on a scale, like a drop from a bucket. That's what they're like before this God. It's God's sovereignty over all the nations. And in verses 16 through 17, it talks about Lebanon being not enough for fuel. Uh, Lebanon was this archetypal, beautiful place. It's where Solomon would go and get the, the, the wood for the temple and for his palace. This was an archetypal, beautiful, fertile place. It's like going to California and to the, to the, big, to the big oaks out there, the redwoods out there. And, and, and it says you could cut them all down, you could take all the life and burn them up, and it would not be enough to satisfy this God. They were surrounded by nations that believed that their gods had to be cared for, that they had to be fed. And it says you could burn it all down, you could smoke, light it all up, and it still would not be enough for this God. And the term that it says emptiness, um, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing. And emptiness, emptiness is actually the language of creation, tohu vavohu, formless and void. That's what the nations are like formlessness before creation. Actually, this passage draws on numerous psalms. Go your homework today. I'm a professor, so I, it's, it's compulsive. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm assigning you homework today. Go read Psalm 103, uh, just for example. But numerous psalms are, in, uh, are, are interacted with in this, in this passage. Uh, and, but also creation. Creation is drawn upon. The creation account is drawn upon in numerous places. And that's what the nations are like. They're like that moment in creation where everything is formless and void before this God. Verses 18 through 20. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Verses 18 through 20. And he talks about an idol. You know, if you're, if, if you're building your idol and you've got a little bit of money, you get some gold. That's nice. Got a nice shiny idol. You get some silver chains to hold it together, right? That's, that's, you get a pretty idol, right? But if you don't have so much money, you get some wood. And hopefully it's good wood, wood that will not rot. And you put it there. What does it do for you? I'm going to move it again. What does it do for you? 
In fact, the, the, Isaiah has a lot of humorous language about the idols. Idols in the ancient world in, in, in Mesopotamia would go on trips. They would take holidays, not really holidays, but they would go see bigger gods because everybody had personal gods and they had bigger gods and city gods and it was all this whole um, web of, of, of deities. And so you would take your little idol and you'd put them on a cart and they would go and see other gods. And actually, Isaiah talks about how these gods are like burdens to animals. You know, the animals are like, they're straining. Like, so you think of like an oxen straining because it's carrying around your God. Can you bow down to that? You want your God, this idol, to bear your burdens, and yet it's a burden to these beasts and these animals? Whom will you compare this God to? An idol? How could you make an image of him? Whether laden in beauty or more humble, the idols sit immovable. Now, I know that probably none of you have bales at home and Asher. If you do, I'm coming over later, <laughs> and I have some great ideas. I teach Old Testament, so I have great ideas. It will probably involve at least crushing it up and you drinking some of it, but we'll see. I mean, we can get creative here, and uh, we'll, we'll just see what kind of happens, but i got lots of great ideas about what we can do about this. But the fact of the matter is, is we all struggle. We have idols in our hearts, and we bow down to them all the time, and we serve them so faithfully, and we look to them, and they're like the absurd image of you sit at there, and what in the world could I do with it? Still we bow down day after day after day. How would you compare that to the living God? And then verse, verses 21 through 24, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And it talks about how God is set, seated on the, above the circle and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers before him. From the beginning, this language again is actually uh, the language of creation. The Rashit there is the same word here, from the beginning. The Bible consistently teaches us that you could go outside and look at the world around you without your Bible, and you should be able to know that there is a God who exists and that he's eternal. That he is powerful. That he's immense. Haven't you known this from the beginning? He's the one who sits upon the throne. And the nations are like grasshoppers. Any of you have irrational fears about grasshoppers? I mean, we, we probably, probably not. I mean, they might be a little annoying. You flick them off, maybe you get a little nervous. But probably no one feels threatened by grasshoppers. They're not very significant. You know, you just, that's it, right? That's what the nations are like before this God. And he, he says that the princes, he brings the princes to nothing. It's important to understand that those who are in power are in power because God has placed them there. And he lifts them up and he brings them down. Go read the book of Daniel. He lifts the kingdoms up and he brings them down. So you've got two homework assignments already. I'm not even done. But go read the book of Daniel. He lifts up the, the, the nations. He tears them down because he is seated upon the throne. The nations are like grasshoppers before him. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Again, this is the word of Tohu. This is the word of creation again. It's like they're nothing before him. He brings them to nothing. Why would you look to a kingdom of grasshoppers when your God is enthroned in the heavens? And then verse four, 24, they're described like seedlings that cannot take root. You know when you plant something 
it's particularly vulnerable when you first put it in the ground, right? Because the roots have not really taken, uh, taken yet. And it's very vulnerable. You have to be very, very careful, extra careful when you just plant something. Well, that's what he re- described it like. Scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, and they're gone. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Then it says, to whom, verses 25 through 26, then will you, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes and see who created these things. He who brings out their host by the number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Who will you compare this God to? Do you ever struggle to to doubt? I mean, to to, to believe, to trust? Let me encourage you to do something. Get outside. Look up. Look at the stars shining. Look at a wave crashing. Look at a mountain towering. Look at the beauty of the creation and the faces of people created in the image of God. Say, my God made these. Why would you trust in these idols? Why would you trust in these princes? Get outside and look up. Your God, the Lord God, made these things. And again, this language of um, the word here, uh, bara, actually appears. Uh, so the Hebrew word bara appears in this text, which is the word from creation. In the, God, in the beginning, God created. Again, he is the one who created all these things. He's taking you back to the beginning so that you might look forward with faith to the future. So the desire to trust in princes and the desire to trust in idols is replaced by offering a great vision of God. When you struggle to believe and trust, get outside and remember he made all these things. So where do you turn for help in time of need? To princes? To idols? Or to the one who is seated upon the throne? But there's a problem. There's a problem. When you learn of God's power, you can come to very wrong conclusions about what this God is like and think that he has no regard for you then. If he's that great and the nations are like grasshoppers, like dust on the scales, then how could he ever care for me? So don't just behold this God and his power. Behold his God, this God and his gentleness towards you. This is where verse 11 is really important and why I chose to deal with this entire section. It's because we need to hold these two things together, that God is powerful and that God is gentle and good. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Think about that. The God who flicked the stars into the sky, who made the mountains, who filled the oceans, gently picks up his people like lambs in his arms. It's a beautiful image. You see the good news of God's gentleness in verse 11 and verses 27 through 31. I think if we've gotten anything good in our culture, think, you know, people talk about criticizing the culture a lot, but one thing that we're really good at is waiting, right? We're a really, really patient people, right? No? Some of you are getting impatient now. Um, but we live in an on-demand culture. The other day, I, I was on the phone call with um, a company trying to work out something, some, a problem that should not have existed in the first place. And I was on hold for 45 minutes. 
And um, when I finally got to speak to a person, we spoke for about a moment, and then they said, I'm going to need to put you on hold, sir. And I was like, I was like, hold on, ma'am, I've been on hold for 45 minutes. And she said, I'm aware. And then clicked over. I'm thinking, that's great. Well, I just, I'm glad we're on the same page, you know. But it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait because we're used to getting same-day delivery or next-day delivery or however you want your coffee or fast food or through the drive-thru or whatever it is. It's hard to wait. Waiting is hard. And when we wait in our spiritual lives, in our walks with God, we can assume that God has forsaken us or overlooked his people. And that's really what seems to be going on in verse, verse 27. He says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? And it goes on to say, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And it talks about youths growing weary, but those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. You see, even the greatest athletes in the world wear out. Olympics are coming up. Perhaps you're going to watch some of that. See what happens. The people who are in the best shape in the world wear out. You go to track meets, you go to cross-country events, so often you see, or marathons, you see the people collapse at the end. People in the best strength. They wear out. But God says, even those get weary, but those who wait for the Lord renew their strength. And they mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Everybody wears out. Everybody gets tired. But your God does not grow weary. Your God does not wear out. So these truths are coupled with the expression of God drawing near to his people. The strength of the people is found in waiting for the Lord. In fact, waiting on the Lord, did you know this? Waiting for the Lord is actually often associated in the Psalms with God's faithful people. Um, you can see it in uh, Psalm 25, 2, Psalm 21, uh, 27, 14, 130, verse 5. And in waiting for God, they exchange their weakness for God's strength. So what have I been on about? What have I been talking about? I've been talking about God's power and God's judgments. And I'm telling you to wait because that's what God's word says to do. Wait. And the greatest expression of the power and the gentleness of God is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He created the world by speaking. Speaking. He is the light shining in the darkness. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He walked on water. He healed the sick. He brought sight to the blind. He laid down his life and he took it up again because he had authority to do it. And he will judge the nations. Think of the revelation. When in Revelation where he's described in this terrifying imagery and he's going to judge the nations. Jesus Christ is powerful. Still, Jesus wept over the Jerusalem that would crucify him. He let the little children come to him. It wasn't too important. He wasn't too busy. He stopped and talked to a woman who had suffered from an issue of blood for years, even though he was on an important mission. He left the 99 and went after the one. He left glory. He humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, silent like a lamb before its shearers. He offered up his life, the perfect sacrifice for many. 
So where can you find help in your time of need and in weariness? Run to Jesus. Wait for Jesus. For though he is powerful, he is gentle and lowly of heart. See, God has told you the end from the beginning. So be prepared to wait and to trust. When you share the gospel with a loved one, be prepared to wait. When you pray, be prepared to wait. When you serve the Lord and you don't see fruit, be prepared to wait. When you seek wisdom and discernment, be prepared to wait. When you have a wayward child, be prepared to wait. Waiting on Jesus is not idleness. No, it's continuing to put your hand to the plow. It's getting your hands dirty and patiently trusting in him to move and to work according to his purposes and his timing. Are you prepared to wait on the God who is both gentle and powerful? Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness. We thank you that you are immense, that you are beyond description, that you are awesome in glory and power, and yet you stoop down to be our God. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Help us to trust in you as we wait. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.